Hello to everyone. We're thankful for another opportunity to be able to study the Word of God with you. Thankful again that the Lord allowed us the opportunity to be able to do this. And we hope and pray that uh, through the Spirit and the Word of God we could be a help, a strength, uh, a blessing to you. So we're in John chapter 3 as we walk down through this chapter. And last time, we got down to about verse 21. We're still in uh, Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus as he is uh, explaining and revealing to Nicodemus what it means to be born again, why it's necessary to be born again. And down verse 18, 19, 20, we covered last time, he's speaking of the condemnation of man. So he's concluded all men under sin that all must be born again. Those that have not entrusted Christ with their salvation, they're condemned already, not waiting to be condemned. And the condemnation is that men love darkness rather than light. Uh, and we talked about how that man before Christ ever came was fallen and in the clutches of Satan and overcome by sin with no remedy, no means to cure the sickness of sin, no means to escape and truly escape the judgment of God. So man was already condemned in sin. So Jesus came as a means for man to escape the condemnation of sin. So if I don't believe in Jesus, then I'm falling under my guilt of the law, the guilt of my sin, and I am at this point in time condemned, awaiting the judgment of God. So he, he begins to reveal the gospel really, the, the good news of Jesus. And men love darkness rather than light because they're evil. And the reason that man would reject the gospel and the word of God, it's not because of the message that Jesus came to give his life that we could live. It's not that God loves us and gave His only begotten Son. None of those things are offensive to man. But what's offensive is that I am in need of salvation, that I'm a sinner, that I'm a lawbreaker, and that's why man rejects Jesus. It's why the Pharisees rejected Jesus while He was on the earth. It was why publicans, those that rejected Him, it's why they did. And it's why man rejects him today. It's not because the message is bad. What a wonderful message the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has provided a means and a way for us to escape the wrath and the judgment of God through His Son Jesus Christ. A glorious message and a wonderful message. But the problem is that I'm evil. And that's what's offensive. And that's what causes man to reject. And they don't want their deeds reproved. That word means convicted or convinced. They don't want to be convinced that they're a sinner. So what they do is they turn from the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So in verse 21 now, this is the last verse 
of Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. So those and doeth truth, and I think in context with this scripture, we can see that no man by their natural works is doing the truth, but those that would come to the light of Jesus Christ, the light that I'm a sinner, I'm in need of salvation, the light that Jesus was sacrificed for my sins, those that would come to and submit to the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they come to the light. They love the gospel. They love the Holy Spirit. And their desire is to be under the gospel. I believe we can see this in the Psalms. Psalm number 26. This is a Psalm of David. And listen to what David says. Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart, for thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in truth. So David is here requesting that God would search him and try him with the word of God, not afraid, not ashamed, not running into darkness to get away from the conviction of sin, but David is here speaking to the Lord, saying, Search me and know me. And that heart, those that trust Jesus Christ, that is the kind of heart that they'll have because they are begotten, by the word of God, and we can read that in First Peter chapter number 1. You know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition of the elders, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and blemish, so on down in verse 22, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, not be being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. So those souls that have been begotten by the word of God, they will by the nature of of the work of God within their heart, love and desire the gospel. Them that are saved, they'll want to be near the light. They'll want God to search them and try them so that they might be purified more and more as the day approaches. And you know, we're not talking about purification of salvation. When one is born again and the operation of God is performed in the heart, there's no need of a redo or a do-over. That's a completed work. But this outward man is in continual need of reformation because he's a rebeller. He's a Barabbas is really what he is. He wants to rebel against the authority of God. He wants to go against the word of God. He wants to commit evil and sin continually. And 
the goal of the Word of God is to bring my outward man more and more into the image of Jesus Christ as we live in this world. And that purification, the purification for salvation of the soul already been complete, now through the light of the gospel, God is cleansing my life and bringing my outward man more into subjection to the will of God. David's desire was, Oh God, search me. He wasn't ashamed to come to the light, but he desired God to search him with the word and with a spirit to purify him. In Second Corinthians chapter 5, and this is very familiar, we've been through here many times, but verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So here is being born again. Here is where the love of the gospel comes from. It's not by the nature of the uh, fleshly man, the Adam man, that we love the gospel. The natural man desires darkness rather than light because he's evil. But those that trust Christ, those that do truth, doeth the truth, as Jesus says here in John 3, those that have come to the gospel and trusted Christ for their salvation, and God, having performed His work in their heart, they are made by the hand and power of God, a new creature. Remember the being born again, being born from above. The child does not induce its birth. That is brought on by the father, <coughs> uh, by the mother at conception. The child has nothing to do with that. When labor begins, the child has nothing to do with that. All of that's dependent on the outward things outside of the control of the child. Well, here, being born again, this is a work of God. God is re, uh, reforming this creature, this man, into a new person. Inwardly, he is made into a new creature. The old things, the old desires, the old affections and lusts that used to rule over our heart, God has cast them out, he says in Titus, by the washing of uh, and I'm, I'm not going to try to quote it. I'm going to mess it up. So I'm going to turn there, and we'll read that. The washing of regeneration, I believe, is how he says it. This is Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So God, at salvation, washes regenerates and renews that man and he's now a new creature and out of the inward man his desire is for the word of God. He now, what he used to despise, the gospel and the truth of the word of God, he's no longer ashamed of that but his desire is to draw nearer to God out of the inward man, bring the outward man more in the subjection of the work of God. Again in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, 
which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So this workmanship, it's the product of God. Them that are saved, born again, as he says in John 3, them that the operation of God has been performed in their heart because they came to the truth of the gospel by faith, they are created and are the product of God made to come to the gospel and to have a new, changed, renewed life in Christ Jesus. This is the result of salvation. So you look at those that despise the gospel, that do not want to hear the gospel, that do not like preachers of the gospel, that doesn't want to go to church because of the gospel, however and whatever excuse may be laid out there, people that don't like the gospel, they are not born again. If they were born again, if they did the truth, they would come to the light. They would come to the gospel desiring God to enlighten them a little more that they might draw closer to the Lord that gave His life for them and delivered them out of the kingdom of the darkness of Satan. That their deeds may be manifest so that the cover might be taken off and that what they are might be revealed that they are wrought in God. So, who done this work? A lot of people's testimony of their salvation sounds like this. I went to church. I went to the altar. I prayed. I testified. I professed. I got baptized. I joined the church. And I've been faithful ever since. Now, all of those things, to the natural man, those things sound wonderful. Sounds like salvation to the natural man. But where in that is the work of God? This man is not ashamed to come to the gospel because God hath wrought in that person a work. So you see the, the result of a changed life comes from the work of God. And if God does not do a work, no matter how good the life looks to the outward man, no matter what works of righteousness that we've accomplished in our life, without the work of God, there is no salvation. That I feel like that needs to be stressed more and more and more. It's not that people don't live right. You know, I feel like that's a focus a lot of times in preaching. And I, I understand. And them that are saved, they'll have a life to go with the gospel. But really, the life will come when the work of God is accomplished. The multitude of people today are missing the work of God performed in the heart. So uh, that ends the discourse between Nicodemus and Jesus. And we see Nicodemus a couple more times through the book of John. But God having revealed here the means, the purpose, the necessity of being born again from heaven and what it means. It's not a work that man does. It's a looking to Christ and the work that he did. So just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, 
the Son of Man was lifted up on the cross of Calvary. And just as the children of Israel, they didn't have to run, they didn't have to walk, they didn't have to travel, they didn't have to do some great work, all they had to do was look to that brazen serpent that Moses lifted up. What does man do today? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is preached and man looks to Jesus entrusting his power and God does the work of salvation. So uh, we're going to kind of change gears for the rest of this chapter and we're going to see John the Baptist and the focus be on him. And You know, I realize this half of the chapter is probably not uh, near as popular, uh, maybe not even as desired to hear, but since we're here, we're going to finish the chapter. So in verse 22, And after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anan near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. So John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one commissioned of God to begin preaching the gospel. And so we see here, here's Jesus after his discourse with Nicodemus. They come into Judea and baptize. Now, there could be a lot of argument here. Had John, had not the Holy Spirit included a verse in chapter 4, verse 2, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples so the way it sounds if you read this in verse 22 it sounds like Jesus was baptizing and now in in the Corinthian church Paul writes in 1 Corinthians they were disputing well I was saved under Paul's preaching and another would say I was saved under Apollos preaching and there was contention there. One said, I'm better because Paul was preaching when I was saved. And the other argued, no, I'm better because I was saved when Apollos was preaching. And that caused great contention. Well, now here, what if Jesus Christ baptized you? That'd be a great claim of being better than somebody that was baptized by Peter or James or John. But Jesus did not baptize with water. His disciples did. Jesus oversaw it. Jesus, I believe, commissioned it. If Jesus did not want them baptizing, they wouldn't have baptized. So I'm not trying to belittle the act of baptism in water. But here, Jesus was not baptizing. He was overseeing as his disciples did. So... John was baptizing near to Salim because there was much water. So uh, maybe this sounds silly, but there was much water there, and John's baptism, you know, I guess there could be a dispute today whether baptism is meant to be a sprinkling or an immersion under the water. Well, if it was a sprinkling then it wouldn't matter how much water was there. But John's here at a place where there's much water. 
a place where it's deep enough for people to go in. And really, the Greek word baptismo, which is where baptism comes from, that word means immersion of itself. So I believe we have enough evidence to say that immersion is the proper means of baptism, uh, or at least the means that John the Baptist performed. But really, you're splitting hairs when you begin to get there. But in, in Matthew chapter 3, so if you're going to be baptized, you're going to have to go out to where the water's at. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. So that's Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Speaking of John, John's out by the river, and Jerusalem and Judea is coming out to where he's at. Here in <coughs> John chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus is out by the river, and he's baptizing. John is out near the river, and he's baptizing. And the Bible says in 23, and they came and were baptized. So the, the picture here is they're out by the water where there's a means of people to be baptized. And you know, I think that makes good common sense that if you're going to be baptized, you're going to have to go to where the water's at in order to be baptized. You can't be baptized just anywhere. There's going to have to be water. Well, I think there's a great picture there of salvation and that if there's going to be salvation, people's going to have to come out to where the water of the Word of God is. Uh, if I'm not willing to go to the house of God, if I'm not willing to sit under the gospel, if I'm not willing to get up and to put forth effort to be at the house of God where the gospel is preached, how am I ever going to be immersed in Christ Jesus our Lord? And you say, well, baptism's not the same thing. Well, Jesus says you've got to be born of the water and of the Spirit. John the Baptist says he'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He's not going to dunk you in the river, but this man's coming to remember chapter 3 here to be born again. This man's coming that you can be born again of the water of the Word of God and of the fire of the Holy Spirit. So if we can see the natural picture, if we're going to be baptized, we've got to go where there's water. Well, if we're going to be born again, we're going to have to go where the gospel is being preached. And a people, a world, a nation that is that does not have the gumption to get up on a Sunday or a Wednesday and go down to where the water's at, where the Word of God is being preached, they'll never be baptized by the Holy Ghost and with fire. They'll never be born again. There's going to have to be an effort. Those that were going to be baptized of Jesus' disciples or of John the Baptist himself, they were going to have to get up out of the place where they were. And that's what we see in Matthew chapter 3. Then went out to him. They got up from where they were and went out to where John the Baptist was. And it was of necessity because that's where the water was. Well, God has put the Word of God in His church. That is where the Word is preached and proclaimed. You know, I, I realize that at funerals, there's preaching 
what little bit that there is anymore today. You're seeing more and more um, funerals where there's not even a preacher. And that shows the darkness of man and how few there are that's truly saved. But the gospel is set in the church and people that are going to hear the gospel and be born again, they're going to have to go out to where the gospel is. I know it would be wonderful to sit at home and be able to hear the gospel and be saved, but it's not the same thing to sit at home, hear the gospel, and be saved. And, you know, not to belittle that, I, I thoroughly enjoy recording these, whether it be Sunday school at church or me recording one of these Bible studies at home. I enjoy that. I think it's a good thing. I enjoy other preachers that record and post. And I enjoy having the opportunity, traveling to work or back home, having men that I can listen to and hear the truth of God, learn, be blessed by the gospel. I thoroughly enjoy that and believe that that's a good thing. But it's no replacement for me being down at the house of God on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. It's not a replacement for being there in person under the gospel. <clears throat> so we're going to have to get up and go out. Well, that's inconvenient. Well, I would say Jesus hanging on a cross, giving his life, I would say that was inconvenient for Jesus. And yet, he did so that we could be saved. If we're going to be born again, we're going to have to come to where the water is. And that's the terrible thing today. Churches want to be closed. We want to put off services. People are scared, slapped to death of getting of getting sick. And, you know, I kind of understand that in a way because of all the hype that our news has put on that. But I want you to know and be assured of this. There's no replacement for service at the house of God. And if Satan can get rid of one, if he can get rid of two, if he can get rid of all services, that would be his desire and his pleasure. That's the will of Satan. If we could ask God what his will would be for the church, I wonder what God would say. That's simple, but it's easy understood. So he's baptizing, for John was not yet cast into prison. We all know what happens to John the Baptist. He's going to be taken. He's going to be put in prison for preaching the gospel. And he's going to have his head took off of him. But the writer here is letting us know, this was before John was put in prison, we've got sort of a timeline that we can go by. So in, in verse 25, there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. So I, I can't say exactly what the question was between the two. It could have been that what about the ceremonial washings that the Jews did versus baptism? And what's the difference? If I go through the Jewish ceremonies, why do I need to be baptized? That could have been the question. 
But I'm going to say more than likely, because of what we see John the Baptist say in the following verses, the question came up of the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus' disciples. So they're, they're disputing between one another. And you know, John's disciples, they loved John. They loved his preaching. They believed what they were doing was the right thing. And what they were doing was the right thing. John was commissioned, a man sent from God, a man with a message from God, a man with a baptism from God. <clears throat> so the disciples of John desire to defend him, and they think the world of John. The Jews come and they say, well look, this man Jesus, he's over there with his disciples and they're baptizing. What's the difference between the two? So, I mentioned this scripture earlier, and I'm going to read it now in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4. Here's the same dispute. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. So the dispute in the Corinthian church between ministers and who was better, and who was greater, and uh, Paul is revealing that Paul himself and Apollos, that they were nothing. That what was important was that God had done the work in the heart. And all that they were were laborers trying to work the works of God, trying to spread the gospel of Jesus. And if anybody is truly saved, they're saved not because Paul gave some great learned discourse, not because Apollos was some great spiritual man, but they were saved because God, in His predetermined, foreordained will, gave the increase. So, they're just laborers by whom God chose to save the preacher that was preaching when you were saved, all he was was a man that God chose to use to save you. Could God have used another man? He certainly could have. But the same work would have been accomplished. So while I, I do believe we ought to cherish the men of God that labor and that preach the word for our souls, we also have to remember that when they leave, when they step down, when they're gone, that's not cause for the church to shut down because God continues onward, though man does not. So John is going to respond. Let's look in 26 before John responds. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, 
He that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. So I think here is the evidence of what the dispute was, though it doesn't explicitly say the dispute between John's disciples and the Jews. I believe here John's disciples are going to come to John. You know, when there's a question too hard, Take it to the Master. Take it to one that knows. And God has provided a means in the church, or, you know, I I hope that at your church you have this means. God's provided teachers, preachers, pastors, deacons. He's provided a system that if I have a question of the Word of God, of the will of God, that is too difficult for me, God's provided a means for me to go to somebody that knows more than me, that can help guide me in the truth of God. So the disciples, they don't know the answer. They don't know how to respond. They bring the question to John the Baptist. And they say, listen, John, this man Jesus, the one that you said was the Lamb of God, He's baptizing now, and everybody's going to him. He's got a bigger crowd than what we've got. Now, don't you reckon that that, uh, that natural man now, you can see what they're thinking. They're envious, and we need to put a stop to this. He's bringing an end to your ministry. This isn't the first time either. In Numbers... Chapter number 11, verse number 26. So here is the children of Israel in the wilderness, and the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of the Lord, falls on some of these people in the camp. And in verse 26, But there remained two of the men in the camp, the name of one is Eldad, and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but went out, went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. So here is two men that are prophesying in the camp of Israel while Moses is going out to the tabernacle. But now, this is not the wrong thing. The Bible tells us that the Spirit rested on them, and the Spirit opened their mouth. And in verse 27, And there ran a young man and told Moses, and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. So they come and report to Moses, There's two men in the camp, and they're prophesying from God. And Joshua says, Master, Moses, you need to forbid them from doing that. And maybe it's not clear here what the purpose was, what Joshua was thinking in saying so. But we see again in Moses' response what Joshua meant. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake. So Joshua loved Moses. And if you look, really, from the latter part of Exodus on, you'll see Joshua and Moses connected very close. Joshua was a young man that stayed with 
that served, that followed Moses, and that no doubt loved him and his affection was to him. So when Joshua hears that other people are prophesying, he wants to defend Moses and say, Look, Master, you'd better put a stop to this or people are going to leave you and follow them. But Moses knows this is not about Moses. It's not about Joshua. It's not about the children of Israel. Moses says, Do you envy for my sake? Are you worried about me? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So Moses responds to Joshua, Are you envying for my sake? My desire is that the whole camp would prophesy, that God would bless the whole camp with a spirit and that they would all be able to speak the word of God by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost of God. Moses says, Don't envy for my sake. I desire that God's presence be exalted. So don't envy man. And we're going to see John's response very, very similar to Moses. But in Ecclesiastes, this is an interesting little truth penned by Solomon. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. Again, I considered all travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. So here's a man trying to do the work of God, and he's despised because of envy, that bitter hatred produced by jealousy and desire to have what they have. So here... The disciples of John, they are upset because more people are coming to Jesus' disciples than they are to John. Joshua is upset that people are prophesying and it's not Moses. They're envying for the man's sake. But here, I believe, is what Paul was trying to get across to the Corinthian church. Whether I preach and you're saved, or Apollos, or Peter, or James, or John, whether it's John the Baptist, or his disciples that's baptizing, or it's Jesus' disciples that are baptizing, whether it's uh, the children of Israel in the camp prophesying, or it's Moses and Aaron that's prophesying, it doesn't matter as long as the work of God is being accomplished. It doesn't matter who you're saved under as long as God's doing the work saving you. So to envy, to envy another church where the gospel is preached, to envy another man and his labor and success that God's given him, that's foolish, foolish thinking, and that's not in the heart of a true minister of God. But there ought to be joy that God is working and people are being saved. See, whether it's John baptizing or it's Jesus' disciples baptizing, people are being baptized into the gospel of the kingdom of God. And that ought to be enough to bring rejoicing, gladness, and happiness to the church. Do we desire people be saved at our church? We do. I would love, I would love to see an army of people saved at our church. But to hear of an army of people saved at your church, 
would bring the same joy, and I pray that it would to you as well. There's no room for envying in the kingdom of God. But God help us to desire this, that the work of God would be completed, that we could do our part to see God's word go out. I believe we'll stop there, and maybe we're a few minutes shorter than we typically are, but that's a good stopping place. We'll pick up in verse 27 next time, and we'll see that that'll begin John's discourse with his disciples, explaining the kingdom of God unto them. I hope that the Lord blesses you. Hope you have a wonderful week. We love you. We love you everyone. Uh, many of you we know. Many of you we don't, but we love you. Pray that the Lord would bless you with His Spirit, and that you could grow in the knowledge of His Word. Pray for us.